right, our next speaker is Dr. Mueller. Um, he'll be talking on the review of surgical approach to non-melanoma skin cancers. Um, Dr. Mueller initially spent seven years practicing in general dermatology, both in and out of the Navy. In 2004, he did a fellowship in Mohs uh, Micrographic Surgery at Northwestern Skin Cancer Institute of Chicago. And he currently works in general, general medicine, I'm sorry, not general medicine, general derm and Mohs surgery at Gunderson Lutheran Medical Center in La Crosse, Wisconsin. So please welcome Dr. Mueller. And after this, um, we have coffee break directly after in the same room. All right. Well, good morning. Uh, thank you for uh, inviting me. It's a pleasure to be here. Um, I, I have the pleasure of working with uh, Mr. Budolf, Greg, uh, every day. Um, I'll tell you, he works very hard to try to, try to put together a good program for you guys, so um, I hope this will go well. If, uh, if anybody disagrees with anything I say, please send your hate mail to me, not Greg, because he really works hard to try to do this for you. I'll tell you straight off, um, I'm a Mohs surgeon, so that's kind of the slant I take to things. Um, I am perhaps a, a little bit biased, I'll just admit it right off the top. Um, but nevertheless, I will talk about a full range of treatment, or skin cancer treatments, and I do use them all myself. I, I think what I've, uh, I'm talking about is relatively balanced, because um, uh, I actually, as I said, performed, did general dermatology for about seven years before going on to Mohs. And the only thing that's changed since I did the fellowship is that I now do the Mohs on my own patients. Um, but the patients I would have treated with electrodesiccation and curatage or cryotherapy or whatever before, I still treat that way. Um, what I'm kind of presenting is a very conservative approach to skin cancer. What, what it's really geared towards is trying to you know, avoid the disaster cases. I don't know if anybody ever has had the experience here. I'm sure most of us had it at some point where we treat a patient and then we find out a year, year and a half, two years later that they're having some major problem with something that you know, we had uh, been involved with early. And you sit and wonder, could have I avoided this? Or is it something I did? And you know, at least for myself, it just beats me up. So what I'm really working is, is a conservative approach that will avoid the disasters down the road. Now, it's not the only way to treat cancer. If you guys have other approaches, it may be reasonable as well. And if you do, that's great. We'll have something to talk about afterwards. And, great ideas. So anyway, with that, we'll kind of move on along here. So when I talk about non-melanoma skin cancer, I mean, it's obviously a lot of things, and I'm sure you guys are familiar with all of these. But for all practical purposes, what I'm talking about is basal cell and squamous cell carcinoma, which is the vast majority, obviously, of what we all see on a daily basis. So I won't read this list or, or make you guys read it, but obviously when you're looking at a lesion on somebody, there's a lot of things you have to think about in terms of possible, possible diagnoses. And a few clinical photos, which are always kind of nice in a dermatology lecture. It's, obviously, these are things you've all seen. You just have to kind of keep in the back of your mind. How's that? Can you still hear me? Is it better? Thumbs up? Okay. Um, you need to keep in the back of your mind. It can have a, a lot of different looks. Um, well, just like they told me it would do. I guess the pointer is a little touchy little issue here, so I'll probably avoid it. I, I hope I can get my ideas across. There? Okay. Um, as you can see in some of these, it can look, you know, basal cell can look like a patch of eczema, a non-healing sore, or, or the infiltrating lesion there on the cheek. Um, so you kind of need to get past that curly papule look, which most people kind of think of early on. And I want to go through a little bit of histology here, because I think it's important to know. I'll tell you, most of my dermatology was taught to me by dermatopathologists. And when I think about clinical dermatology, the best dermatologists I have ever known were clearly, despite being a Mohs surgeon myself, the best dermatologists I have ever known were dermatologists, dermatopathologists. Uh, if you ever get the chance to work with one of them, do it. Um, unfortunately, they're a little bit of a disappearing breed, I think, as pathology kind of takes over more of the derm path. But this is a typical, as you know, there are many different subtypes of basal cell carcinoma. Nodular, multinodular, um, uh, superficial, multicentric, cystic, 
morpheiform infiltrating patterns. And those things do make a difference in terms of uh, making decisions about treatment. So hopefully you're getting that information on your pathology reports. If you're not, it, it does pay to take the time to look at your own slides. And kind of a general recommendation I usually have is, you know, really, um, in my mind, the difference between um, a dermatologist, uh-oh, you tell me where you want it. The, really, the difference between a, a, um, somebody who works professionally in the field of dermatology as opposed to, say, the family physician or pediatrician or internist who kind of dabbles a little bit is really the knowledge of dermatopathology. And so, you know, I, I really recommend getting to know that well and take some time to look at your own slides from time to time. If you suddenly change pathologists, you work with a new pathologist, call for your slides for a while so you kind of get an idea of whether you're communicating effectively. Particularly, um, dermatopathologists are usually pretty good about using the terminology, but sometimes if you're working with general dermatologists, I know some of the general, uh, not general dermatologists, but general pathologists in my own practice kind of use this, uh, these, this terminology a little differently. So this, is a, this would be considered a nodular basal cell carcinoma. And you kind of see this little bit of clefting right in here. You know, well-defined tumor island, very little connective tissue in there, this little clefting. When I was a resident, there was a lot of discussion that uh, this clefting in here was an, uh, an artifact of processing. They've actually um, seen that now with some of the confocal scanning laser microscopy work. They've actually seen that that does exist in vivo. And you can see it's kind of, I don't know what's in that space. I presume a little bit of interstitial fluid, but this is a well-defined tumor island just kind of floating in a little pool of fluid, and it's going to shell and pop out of there easily with uh, one of the treatments we'll talk about. Superficial multicentric basal cell carcinoma, again, that little clefting in there. Now, when you guys get pathology reports, I don't know if uh, your pathologist will sometimes report basal cell carcinoma. You know, send in a shave biopsy, and they'll report basal cell carcinoma, margins uninvolved. I'll just tell you, that margin, I, I, I wish they didn't report that. Just throw that out the window. Because uh, you can imagine margins on a tumor like this on a shave mean absolutely nothing. Uh, where's my pointer here? Well, I don't think the pointer is going to work. But if you take a look at one of these little tumor islands here, um, the distance between those tumor islands uh, is about the same as the distance from one of the, 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 the islands to the edge. So you can imagine, say I took just half of that with biopsy, I'd get a report saying margins uninvolved, but clearly when you look at this, the margin would be there. And the distance from, say, one island to the next island is about the same as this distance from one island to the edge of the slide. So really, on a shave biopsy, it's a conservative procedure. Margins are meaningless. You need to, to go back if you get that information. Now here's kind of a different beast. This is an infiltrating pattern. And you can see now this one, you have these kind of small spikes of tissue kind of infiltrating down in there. You don't really see the clefting as before. And I mean, just as an example, we'll talk a little bit more about this later, but if you try to take that out with a curette, it's going to go absolutely nowhere. You, know, you can see this, this, this thick, tough connective tissue surrounding all these little tiny islands, and it provides armor and cover for this tumor that you're not going to get with the simpler approaches. Here's a uh, micronodular basal cell carcinoma. And some of these uh, more superficial islands might pop out of there, but some of these little tiny islands down lower, you can see again, they've got this thick connective tissue surrounding them. They're well embedded in there. And probably a simpler uh, technique uh, or destructive technique is not probably going to get that. And this is a, a morpheiform basal cell carcinoma. You can see a few little tumor islands up here and here, these, these clear areas that show a little bit of palisading around them. Uh, but then you see, you know, single cells kind of down in there. And really, you know, for instance, like again with a curette, unless you're just going to basically dig a hole with the curette right down to the fat, this probably is not going to come out with a simpler procedure like that. Again, squamous cell carcinoma, some of these look, you know, much like the basal cell carcinoma. You know, clinical differential diagnosis can be challenging distinguishing between one and the other. 
which is one of the reasons I, I, I biopsy pretty much everything before I treat it. If you biopsy enough things, I'm sure I'm preaching to the choir here, but you realize you get some major surprises. So I, I really don't treat tumors based on a clinical diagnosis. And here's a, a squame. This actually happens to be a squamous cell carcinoma in situ. And on a little higher power, you, you can see these cells. Some people describe it as a windblown look, just kind of, a, a, kind of an unusual pattern or array to these cells. I'm going to take an adventure here and try this pointer again. And I don't think it's going to. You can see these, these abnormal cells in here, and they actually come down this hair follicle. And that's something you have to keep in mind with squam, particularly in situ. It'll track down the hair follicles. Uh, so it can go fairly deep, even though it says in situ, along the hair follicle, it has an approach to go very deep, and a curette won't reach down here, cryosurgery won't reach down here. So it probably needs to be treated a little more aggressively. And here's a, a more invasive squamous cell carcinoma with islands of tumor embedded deep down into the uh, dermis here. So you're kind of looking at, at treatment options here. Um, these are kind of things I think probably most of us have readily available within our office or have uh, um, access to through referral uh, or, or whatever the case may be. We're going to kind of launch into these a little bit here. And obviously, for just about any of these, the, the complications could be, you know, poor healing, scarring. Obviously, pain is, is going to be part of any treatment to some degree. Um, kind of the bigger issues are, are these two near the bottom here, the tumor recurrence and the damage to uh, local structures. Those are the issues I think you're going to have to think about. Think about, you know, what is the risk of recurrence? If a, if a recurrence does occur in this location, how difficult is it going to be to take care of or how morbid will the treatment be? Um, and as I treat this, you know, what, what local structures are in the area that I need to think about? And those are really the issues that I think are going to come to mind primarily when you're deciding between one treatment method and another. And this is the kind of thing you always have to kind of keep in the back of your mind here. This is a, a little tumor right up here, and you can see it's kind of a funny-looking ear. Um, he's got a scar right in here where about six months previously he'd had a wedge uh, a recession done. I don't know where. I don't know how the margins were managed. But now he's got just this little kind of red bump up here that's a little basal cell carcinoma. And I'm thinking optimistically this is going to be simple. It's kind of a concave area. We'll get that out, get it clear, and we'll just let it heal. We won't even really uh, probably uh, do a repair. But... In fact, this, this entire area here is all filled with cancer. And I have a hard time believing that that all developed over a period of six months. So I really wonder about how the margins were, were managed, or, or even if the margins were managed. I mean, you see that sometimes where somebody will look at a basal carcinoma, or, and it looks very well defined. Uh, they'll do an excision and, and not control the margin because it looks like I got it all. I'm positive I got it all. Well, these things can go a long ways uh, through completely normal-looking skin. I mean, if you look at this one, the vast majority of this ear looks perfectly normal. But, in fact, there's cancer clear down into the mastoid and all the way down to the lobe here. So, you know, definitely send everything uh, for margins. And I kind of call this the tip of the iceberg phenomenon where you see what looks like a, you know, small papule. And, in fact, it's a large area. I mean, a case of my own, I had a patient with uh, a little red bump, literally the, the size of a pinhead. And I didn't even notice it, but the patient pointed it out to me, and so I biopsied it, and literally half the nose was filled with cancer. So you always have to keep that in mind, that there may be a lot more there than what you see. The ear in particular is classic. What will happen is the cancer will grow down. It hits that plane between the cartilage and the skin, and, and there's very little resistance in there. And so the, the, uh, the, the cancer will get in there, and it'll just spread throughout this plane. And so underneath all this normal-looking skin is this cancer going everywhere. And it, it has access right down into the ear uh, that way. And I've seen cases where prior to Mohs, you know, we'll do a little curettage, we hit that plane, and it, and it just, just goes. So kind of scary thing. I, and I always, whenever I hear people say, oh, it's just a basal cell carcinoma, I, I, I kind of cringe a little bit. Because um, I've seen just basal cell carcinomas do some really horrible things to people. So electrodesiccation and curettage, I know you're all familiar with this, so I won't discuss the actual procedure itself. 
And it's good for biopsy, again, biopsy proven, um, nodular and superficial basal cell carcinomas. I will sometimes use it for squamous cell carcinoma in situ if it's a relatively non-hair-bearing area, uh, kind of washing up for those hair follicles. Um, I feel most comfortable using it on smaller lesions, but I, I would say this, this bottom point here, less than one centimeter in diameter, I think that's, uh, there, there, there's a probably a little give and take to that one, particularly on a broad surface like the trunk or something. I, I probably wouldn't treat something larger than that on the face, or, or, but again, anatomic structures, uh, locations are, play a part in your decisions as well. Um, lesions that I would not use electrodesiccation and curatage on, as I've already kind of talked about to some degree, are the infiltrating pattern, the morpheiform, um, deeply invasive tumors. I don't think it's a good treatment for recurrent tumors or poorly defined tumors. The thing about electrodesiccation and curatage is it works best for well-defined um, tumors that don't have a lot of scar tissue around them, don't have a lot of connective tissue around them, like that first nodular basal cell carcinoma I talked about. If you get into that tumor with a curette, it's going to be like jello. It's just going to kind of mush out of there, and it's going to work really well. But some of these that I'm talking about here, it's uh, not going to be quite so effective for. And I think this is a good point. Um, maybe I'm telling you things you've already heard, but it's really not a good procedure for lesions that have been diagnosed either with a punch biopsy or maybe an excisional biopsy. And the reason for that is because for, for you to determine where the, the edge of the tumor is, you need that curette to be working against resistance. So, you know, you, you mush through this gelatinous goop until you hit nice, healthy dermis, and then you get that gritty sensation like, uh, like you scrape on the top of a football or something like that. If you've done a punch biopsy, you're gonna, that, that scar is going to be the weakest area of the tissue, and particularly if it's not mature that well, you'll go right through that scar until you pop through the fat. And if you're, you're treating a, a lesion with electrodesiccation curatage and you get into fat, well, the fat is just as jello-y in consistency as the tumor itself. So if you get there, really all bets are off. You need to stop, put the carrot away, and do an excision on the spot because it's, it's no longer meaningful. So if you violated that that junction between the, uh, the dermis and the fat, I think all bets are kind of off with your curette. Um, you know, cure rates I think are good, 80 to 95%. Um, I think definitely you can get 95% or even better cure rates with electrodesiccation and curatage if you select the right lesions. Again, I think careful case selection is important. And I'd like to take this opportunity to point something out. This is slightly my own opinion. It's very much my own opinion. Um, I've not seen this published anywhere. But most of this uh, cure rate data for these uh, procedures that we're talking about, a lot of this data is from like the 60s and 70s. And, and a lot of things have changed since then. Uh, patients are living longer. And the other issue is we're seeing skin cancers younger. I mean, in the 60s and 70s, when they did this work and developed this data, they were probably treating a population of patients who were in their 70s, maybe 80s, you know, maybe 60 would have been a young patient. But nowadays, I'm sure everybody's had the experience of seeing a 20-year-old woman, men in their 30s start walking in. Now, if you take a population of those patients, you know, I don't, and treat them the same way, I don't know that the cure rate's going to really line up quite as well. Because, uh, you know, if you take a bunch of 70-year-olds back in the 60s and treat them with anything, a large portion of those patients are going to pass away from something completely unrelated even before this pops up. And in my own case, I had a patient a couple of years ago who was kind of ahead of the, the times, not in a good way, but she, back in about the uh, late 70s, had had a basal cell carcinoma in the brow, and she was about 30 at the time, yeah, maybe 25. And she had a late recurrence about 30 years later, and that is not uncommon. Uh, you don't see it every day, but, but late, late recurrences do occur. And she had a recurrence in the brow that then curled under the, the orbital rim up into the eye socket, and it was, a, it was a bad tumor. And again, the, 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 the treatment that was used on her at the time was probably typical and worked great for a bunch of 70-year-old patients with basal cell carcinoma. But unfortunately, she was 25. And she had another you know, 30, 40, 50 years of life ahead of her, and it didn't work out so well. In her case, what was done was an excision. And when they got a report back, it said uh, um, tumor close to margin, but uninvolved. And I will bring up the, the, the point if you get a report saying close to margin, but margin is uninvolved, if it says close to margin, that's a positive margin. And, and I'll explain that why a little bit later when you get into some things. But if you do an excision and it says close to margin, that's a positive margin. These are some areas that I tend to avoid this. Uh, nose, 
eyelids, lips, one the jaw. Particularly the, the nose, it's funny, you'll do a biopsy and it'll read superficial basal cell carcinoma. And when I myself go in to do Mohs, I almost never, ever, ever see superficial basal cell carcinoma. I don't know what it is, but there'll be a superficial on the top, you see it with your shave, but underneath there, there's infiltrating morpheiform pattern. So what you see on a superficial shave is not always indicative of what's underneath there. And these are areas, you know, like the eyelids or the uh, EDNC, the skin is so thin you'll pop right through it and into the, into the orbicularis muscle and the underlying fat pads so easily. Um, the nose tends to hide tumors. The ear, again, is thin tumor, and plus it's, you're going to pop down into the cartilage. Um, these are areas where I would avoid that particular procedure. And this is a case where kind of a, I hate to say, kind of um, rules that I personally live by uh, were, were kind of broken. This is a case where electrodesiccation and curatage was done on the nose. He had a recurrence. EDNC was done again. Uh, and this is what it ultimately took to, to clear him. And you can see that's going to be a big undertaking. Um, I don't have a picture of his repair, actually. He went to plastic surgery for repair. They, they tend to protect their secrets carefully. I don't have access to their photos. But even uh, the plastic surgeon working their magic, he's got a nose again, but it's, it's not quite, uh, not like he would like for it to be. Cryosurgery, um, I'm not going to go into in too much detail here. I think the, the pros, the cons, the risks, the benefits are pretty much the same as electric as desiccation and curatage. Um, some patients feel more comfortable with it. I'll be honest with you, I don't personally use it a lot. Something I do do, though, is combine uh, curatage and cryosurgery. I, I like to use those two together. Um, you know, when you treat something with desiccation and curatage, it's really the curatage that's curing the tumor, not the electrocautery. The cautery is just really stopping the bleeding. But the thing cautery does is it creates heat. Heat permeates the tissue. It destroys hair follicles, all the adnexal structures. And you know, when something re-epithelializes, that's where the tissue comes from. That's where the regrowth comes from. It comes up out of those adnexal structures like the hair follicles and then grows back across. So I think with the, the cautery, I, I think there's a little more scarring. I like to, to get as much tumor out of there as I can detect with the curette and then I freeze the base of it. But I don't very often use cryosurgery just by itself. Um, the contraindications, uh, other than some of these cold sensitivity syndromes like Raynaud's and Cryoglobulinemia that I've got here, I think that, that, again, the contraindications are pretty much the same as with the uh, desiccation and curatage. Again, similar cure rates. And again, I think the key is selecting the appropriate patients and, and tumors. Um, I'm going to kind of go through here. I know the last speaker uh, was talking about imiquimod, um, so you might be familiar with that. When I did my residency, which was in the uh, mid-90s, they, they were injecting in, uh, interferons uh, into tumors. And I think part, it never really caught on as a treatment in and of itself, but it was sort of the preliminary work for some of what's being done with imiquimod now. And I'm sure you're almost familiar, Nicomod does have antiviral as well as anti-tumor activity. Um, and it does have FDA approval for skin cancer. Um, it's approved for superficial basal carcinomas, uh, smaller um, in, in non-head uh, and neck areas. And I think it does a pretty nice job, actually. And the typical patient where I like to use this, uh, oftentimes is a, is a woman with a small superficial basal carcinoma in the trunk. Um, where I'm worried about hypertrophic scarring or keloid formation with uh, EDNC or, or surgery or something like that. I think it can do a really nice job. Not that it can't cause a scar, um, it, it can and does, but oftentimes I think leaves a, a nicer aesthetic result. I always discuss with the patient, you know, it's about an 80% cure rate, which means that about one in five will have a recurrence, in which case then we'll have to do surgery. Um, but I think it's, it's reasonable. Um, I, the patients I've done it on have been pretty pleased with it, and I haven't really seen any uh, undesirable results. Um, some, some patients, so, you know, it's about a six-week treatment, uh, and some patients don't feel like, uh, you know, dealing with that. So, you know, you have to talk about all these things with patients. Radiation, um, I, I like to, I occasionally use it. I don't use a lot of radiation. Um, I use it most for salvage for tumors that either cannot be cleared or in order to clear them, there would be such a degree of morbidity that uh, it's uh, best to stop and uh, look at other options. Um, 
the main reason I'm not a big fan of radiation uh, is that uh, while radiation treats cancer, it also obviously causes damage that can cause cancer down the road. And I'm sure everybody here has at some point seen a, a patient with previous radiation develop a cancer within that radiation area. Excuse me, doctor. Can you just speak up a little bit? You've got a lot of great information. And yeah. sit in the front row. Okay. Thank you. Sure. Um, as I was saying, uh, radiation... Um, both treats cancer, but also can cause damage that leads to cancer down the road. And I do see a higher uh, recurrence within radiation. Uh, and what you're dealing with then um, is you've now got usually a more aggressive tumor. Now, whether it's more aggressive because the radiation of the first uh, or the original tumor caused it to transform to something more aggressive, or it was more aggressive in the first place, and that's why it recurred, who knows? You know, it's kind of the chicken before the egg question. But at any rate, when you do have a radiation recurrence, it's usually an aggressive tumor. And now you're treating radiated skin that uh, has lost pretty much most of its uh, uh, pliability, elasticity, uh, and has poor circulation. So you're usually going to wind up with a big defect there. Uh, and then you're going to, obviously you can't radiate it again. Uh, you're going to be trying to get a flap or a graft or some sort of surgical reconstruction to take hold in skin that's not very well uh, able to take a hold of that anymore. So in general, I do believe that anytime uh, something can be managed surgically, before radiation, I do think it's the best way to go. Again, that's a little bit of my, my personal bias. Uh, but even in, in my institution, when I refer patients, occasionally I have a patient that says, I don't want surgery, I want radiation, and I'll send them over. And our radiation oncologist will call me back and say, now this patient's here and I'm willing to do it, but do you really think that's best? Because uh, you know, even, even they are saying that you know, if you can treat it surgically, that's the way they would go. Am I coming through better now? Yeah, okay, good. Um, again, you know, a, a good cure rate, it's just that that, you know, 7 to 8% for which it doesn't cure, um, sometimes you can have big problems. And, of course, you always have to keep in the back of your mind that, you know, some of the inherited cancer syndromes, you don't want to irradiate those patients uh, because they don't tend to repair uh, damaged DNA very well. And so that's going to be a difficulty later. If you don't use radiation in younger patients, that's not going to be an issue. And I myself rarely recommend radiation for anybody less than about 75 or 80 years old, to be honest with you. So getting into surgical excision, which I, I think is really kind of the, the cornerstone of, of management here, um, I think it's appropriate for any tumor that, uh, in which it can be done. The real issue here is, is uh, how are you going to manage the margins? And that's what we're going to talk about. Um, things to think about, how well-defined is this tumor, you know, uh, you know, is this a superficial basal carcinoma, is it a nodular, is it a morpheiform, uh, where on the skin is it, you know, how much surrounding skin am I able to sacrifice in order to, to assure my margins, uh, is it a primary a recurrence, uh, how big is the tumor, these are kind of all issues to think about. So what I'm going to talk about here now are actually the methods of, uh, okay, we've decided we're going to excise it. Now what I'm going to talk about is uh, how are we going to manage the margins. And the first way is the typical elliptical excision, which I'm sure that many, if not all of you do. Um, I think it's kind of nice to talk about what happens to that down in the pathology lab. And this is where I'm going to really have trouble if my pointer doesn't work. What, what, a, what happens down there is uh, they'll take this and they'll cut it like a bread loaf. And they'll plant these uh, tissue sections out on slides. And if they see no tumor, well, if they see no tumor in those tips, they assume that, that in the, the lengthwise dimension it's clear that way. So no tumor this tip, no tumor the bottom tip, we're clear. If in the center where you see the tumor, uh, it doesn't extend to the deep edge or to the two peripheral edges, you assume it's clear in, in those dimensions. Uh, and that, that specimen, as shown there, would be reported as, as, as margins uninvolved. The thing you have to realize, though, that there are large skip areas. My, my dashed lines are show where they're taking sections from. And they actually look at about 0.1% of the entire margin. So from that 0.1%, they're making generalizations about the remaining 99.9% .9 of that margin. And there's a lot of skip area in there. And some of these, I show a perfectly nice circular tumor here, but they don't all grow like that. Uh, I, I've seen tumors that have a well-defined, uh, you know, uh, area like that, and then they'll have like one little arm that just kind of grows off. 
Um, and if that little arm kind of grows off between those dashed lines, that, that would be missed. Obviously, the way we try to compensate for that is by taking an extra four to five millimeter clinical margin. But that comes back to why I say if you get close to margin, in my mind, that means positive margin. Because again, if it's close to the area where they've actually cut the tissue, you don't know what it is a millimeter away. You have no idea whatsoever. And the one thing that I always, you know, when I talk to surgeons, I always talk about is um, a lot of people, they, they oftentimes will think, well, you know, my report said margin's uninvolved, therefore it's, it's a done deal, margin's uninvolved. What would really be the ideal scenario would be is if we got a pathology report back saying margin's uninvolved with 90% confidence, 95% confidence, you know, 50% confidence. Well, the pathologist can't do that because the pathologist didn't see the original tumor. They don't know how large a margin you took around it. It's that extra three to four or five millimeters of tissue that you take around it that determines that confidence interval. So ultimately, it is the surgeon's decision whether that information they get on the pathology report can really be applied to the real life situation in this patient. So in my mind, um, it's, it's the surgeon's decision. When things do recur, all the responsibility comes back to the surgeon. It's not the pathologist. You know, unless there was tumor involving the margin, they just did, didn't see it. But um, it's, it's the surgeon that decides, can I take this information the pathologist gave me and apply this to the, to the real, real patient here? This is a, this is a case, uh, kind of the, the uh, lateral orbital rim there, a fellow had a, a tumoric size uh, and had a recurrence. And in his case, he had perineural spread which is where you know, the tumor will get down around a nerve, and it can take that tiny little nerve, maybe a millimeter in size, and track that like a superhighway to wherever that nerve wants to go. Um, and it can easily escape those, uh, those gaps, escape through those gaps in processing. And he had a recurrence, and you can kind of see it there, that kind of red nodule growing in. And that was his uh, defect. Luckily, it didn't involve the canthus. I don't have the repair, but um, we, we put a graft in there, and he actually did, did pretty well. But discussing excision, the point I want to make is I'm not a big fan, particularly on the head and neck. Despite the fact that excision is clearly the way to go uh, for melanoma. You know, if you're going to biopsy what you think is a melanoma, excision is clearly the way to go because you want that depth uh, uh, for determining Breslow and Clark's and that sort of thing. If you're really thinking seriously that it's a basal cell or a squamous cell carcinoma, I really think just a shave biopsy to get your diagnosis is the best way to go. If you look at a tumor like this, the dash, I'm assuming somebody's going to just look at that and say, it looks like a basal cell. I'm just going to excise this and hope for the best and see what my margins show. Well, they cut around that dashed line. When this gets sewn together, it's going to generate scar tissue in there. And it's even going to generate some scar tissue that radiates out from that area. And now we've got a facial nerve branch right underneath here. And there's going to be some scar tissue that even, you know, gets in the neighborhood of that nerve branch. Now, when you come back to do frozen section control or, in my case, Mohs, whatever the case may be, you're really not clear of tumor until you're clear of tumor itself as well as any scar surrounding it and any inflammation. Okay, so you've got to get clear of that scar. And now you've got scar around the nerve, but you don't want to take out the nerve because you don't want to paralyze the patient's face. Obviously, that gets to be kind of a delicate situation. What's really nice is just to have enough of a biopsy to get your diagnosis. Don't generate a lot of scar tissue around those critical underlying structures. You know, leave the, the planes of dissection undisturbed until, you know, it's time to come back with your definitive procedure. I think it's a, a, a nice way to go. Now, again, if you're thinking melanoma's in your differential diagnosis, it's a, it's a different story. Obviously, you're going to excise it because you want that Breslow depth and Clark's level. But, but in general, if possible, I really, when patients come to me, I prefer if a shave has been done. And this is a scenario where um, somebody had done that. They had done an excision around it, thinking, well, I'm just going to excise this and kind of, you know, hope for the best and see what happens. Well, they've pulled the ALA up, which is not real desirable, although this patient, he, he really didn't care. But the problem is they, they did get a positive margin, and they did a fairly deep excision. So in order to clear it, the only way we could get clear of everything was to create a, a hole clear through his nose. Now, my suspicion is, uh, looking back at the, 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 uh, the, the slides of the original excision, it probably was not a, a through-and-through tumor. But unfortunately, when you, when you came back, the scar did go right through to the mucosa of the nose. And you don't know if when they were cutting, if they cut through the tumor, you know, they pick up a few cells on the blade and plant it lower in that scar tissue. You have to remove it. So he winds up with a hole clear through the nose. 
And obviously, that makes the reconstruction more difficult. Um, if you've got even just a thin mucosa still there, just some covering over the nose, you've got something to plant you know, your repair down on, and it, it makes it easier. Um, here's a, another scenario, kind of a different story. We're, we're kind of near, um, not really a free margin, but we're near an anatomic structure that we don't want to distort. Uh, in this case, it's the brow. It could be an eyelid. could be the corner of the mouth. It could be the, the nasal ala. It could be all sorts of things. And this is a case where the, you know, the, the, the bright red tumor there is what you see with your eye. You look at this patient, that's what you see. It looks like a well-defined little um, you know, rodent ulcer. And, and, and so an excision is done. You know, we're going to do it horizontal. We're going to leave the, the scar right in those horizontal lines of the forehead. It'll look really natural. But in fact, as you can see there, the lighter pink area shows what the tumor really is, and we've got a positive margin. And uh, in, in cases then, you know, sometimes a person will go back and will just excise around that previous scar and we'll sew it up again. And in case, this case, again, we have another positive margin. Well, now in order to, to repair, to, to, to deal with this now, we're going to have to, again, we've got to clear all the prior scar. We don't know where the, that, that tumor is, so we've got to go around that entire previous scar. So, when they, uh, when they drew out these pictures for them, they, they omitted uh, one line in there. But what we'd probably do is take a little elliptical excision around the entire previous scar. And where you see that little hump, we'd probably cut right through there. And in this case, you can see we'd find a positive margin there. And with Mohs surgery, we'd go back then and take that little section. And so the, the wide green line is, is, the, is the defect we'd ultimately wind up with. The problem facing now is if you sew that together and try to create your horizontal line, you're going to hike the eyebrow up to the forehead, which is not really desirable for the patient. Although a horizontal crease or a horizontal scar looks nice and natural, facial symmetry always takes precedence. You'd rather have a scar running straight up and down that leaves the brow at its natural level. The, the issue is, now if you try to look at those tips and imagine sewing those tips together horizontally, well, you're probably not going to be able to get them there. And even if you do, yeah, it's going to put enough tension on the temporal branch of the facial nerve that you may very well get a neuropraxia and leave some paralysis. So you may wind up having not much choice other than to put a graft on there, and a great big tire patch up on the forehead is not real desirable. And the thing that's kind of a concern is, you know, all these tips, the first excision, those peripheral tips, the second excision, those peripheral tips, and then even on the, you know, the, the Mohs, those lateral tips, all that was removed just in order to make your dog ears lay down flat. And that's tissue that could have been very useful. If you'd imagine a, a defect just around that tumor, just think about how much less further, less distance that tissue would have been, had, had to be pulled together. You could have done a little A to T with a scar along the line and then straight up and left a nice symmetrical face. So I think, again, it's a scenario where it's best to just get your biopsy uh, and then come back with histologic control. Now, with that in mind, let me just... I don't know where all of you practice. Um, I was in the Navy. I, I practiced uh, uh, in an area where I didn't have surgical support immediately available. Now, so I'm not telling you you can't deal with a cancer like this. Another option, okay, is on that first go-around, you know, let, let's say that you see that red spot, and in fact, that is all there is. Uh, it'd, be, it'd be reasonable. You know, what you can do is just a circular excision around that. Leave it open. Send your tissue off for margins. You know, your, your infection rate is not going to go up if you sew that together, say, five days later. Send it off. Get your margins. But don't take out those tips. Leave those there until you're sure you don't need that tissue for something. Have the patient come back five days later, and if it's clear, sew it up. Now, that's a way that you can manage it without having to, you know, send the patient off if they have to drive 100 miles or 200 miles to get to a, a, a surgeon, surgeon, whatever the case may be. Um, so it's a way you can manage it. Now, the one thing is that doesn't relieve you of the need to get your 4 to 5 millimeter margins because you're not going to be getting a complete margin like Mohs surgery would do. So you still need to take those margins. But if you think you can get that tumor, get your adequate margin, and still close it, it's not an unreasonable thing to do. But just leave those tips there until you're sure you don't need them. So here's another option, uh, and this is the way it has been done. Um, in, uh, in our institution. I even did it myself this way until I did the, the Mohs Fellowship. And this is a scenario where the tissue's taken out in a geometric excision with nice straight lines. And what it'll do is go down to pathology 
And so you might mark one side quadrant one, two, three, four, kind of going clockwise. When I did it, I would draw a picture right on my uh, pathology uh, requisition. I would mark that out. I'd put a tag at one tip so that it couldn't get confused. And then the pathologist will cut these straight lines. So theoretically, they're getting 100% peripheral margin. And then they'll take the bread loafing section through the center. So they get 100% peripheral margin. They get, a, they get a, uh, a sampling of the deep margin. They can't really get 100% deep margin because to try to take this tissue laid up on its slide and side and take a scalpel and like you know cut off a piece of tissue underneath is you know just about impossible because you get this tissue on your cutting board and it kind of rolls all over the place. Um, a couple of issues I have seen, and one of the reasons I didn't really like doing it this way when I did, I, I think my cure rate was adequate, but my, my defects were a little harder to manage. Because for instance, I'd get a call from the pathologist and they'd say, well, you know, quadrant one is positive. And so I'd ask, well, is quadrant one positive where? You know, in the center? And, well, no, it's kind of towards one of the ends. Well, which end? The end that's near quadrant four or the one that's near quadrant two? Well, we don't have any way of knowing for sure. And so I'd have to go around the whole thing. Whereas if you ink these, like we do in the Mohs, which I'm coming to, you could go back to just that spot and take that little section so the, the defects would be a little bit smaller. Now, before I send, like, I'm pinging on pathologists, I'll tell you, pathologists are great, and uh, I wouldn't want to be without them. But one thing when you send tissue down, something to remember is, you know, the, the pathologist, they're, they're sitting there, they got your piece of skin uh, from the clinic, they've also got a liver sitting here, maybe a pancreas, who knows, maybe even a brain biopsy from these patients in the OR, and your skin that goes down there is not their highest priority. Uh, they're trying to turn things over fast in the OR because operating room time is uh, expense, it's uh, complications, you name it. Uh, so they, they got to get those going first. So they got a lot of things on their mind. And so to think that they're going to sit down and spend an hour, you know, attending to all these, every little detail you, you, you want them to is probably asking a little bit more than uh, is reasonable. And if you can imagine, if you're that patient in the operating room with your pancreas being biopsied on the spot, um, you, you probably would think would like to be their priority there too. Um, another issue I have seen, this happened once, um, we got a, a patient sent from a surgeon uh, who had, had done this technique and they got a report, it was, it was on the forehead, and they got a report back saying, you know, tumor uh, positive at the deep margin. And uh, they were right down to bone on this forehead and, and we're kind of thinking that we have nowhere to go. Uh, and so they actually sent him for Mohs. When we actually pulled out the slides, what we actually found was that in the, in the center portion here, which I, on the upper right-hand corner, this, there was tumor there, obviously, uh, but, and it did extend to the edge, but it didn't go into the fat. On the peripheral sections, which are, are the ones that show up here, I'm sorry, here, here, there was clearly tumor extending to the deep edge, but in this case, the deep edge involved epidermis and a thin little wisp of dermis, um, and it didn't extend through the full thickness of the tissue. So what happened was the, the, the pathologist called and said, you know, deep margin involved, and what the, what the surgeon took from that is this thing is right down to the bone. But in fact, what needed to be told to him was the peripheral margin is involved, the full thickness of that peripheral margin is involved, but the peripheral margin doesn't extend through full thickness skin. Um, whether the surgeon beveled their edges when they took the sample and so it got cut off, or whether as the pathologist was trying to cut this piece of tissue, it kind of rolled a little bit and they didn't get a full thickness, who knows. But again, it's a little bit of an error in communication. I think this geometric figure form can work well. I've seen a lot of uh, otolaryngologists tend to do it a lot and they do it very well. But the ones I've seen do it the best were scenarios where one surgeon and one pathologist always work together. They were the team and the surgeon actually goes down and uh, looks at slides uh, with the pathologist so they can make sure they're communicating. Most, most issues that come up with this, it's a communication thing. Um, and so I would say if, if you're doing this, you know, if you can't possibly do it with one pathologist all the time, that's the way to go. Uh, and look at your slides. And that's just in general. Look at your slides sometimes. Just occasionally take your slide and look at it. So here's, here's the Mohs surgery. And this little box here in the center, you can see this kind of beveled piece of tissue shaped like half a grapefruit. What we do in the lab is we take these edges and press them down, and then we cut them flat, horizontal. So what we wind up with is this little Pac-Man piece of tissue, 
The reason for the Pac-Man is it's a relief cut to allow this tissue to lay down flat. There's not tissue missing there, it's just been kind of separated a little bit. And we'll have a full rim of epidermis, uh, which is the kind of the pink shade, then the dermis and the purple, and then the fat and the yellow. And so we get 100% of the peripheral margin when we look at that. And here, here's kind of an example here, the site um, just to the left of that box uh, on the nose. There, there's a sample we'll take, and you can see I've set it up so there's going to be a positive margin. And we, set, we, we put a little hatch mark in the, in the area, that little up and down line, uh, that little vertical line there um, is a hatch mark. We put a hatch mark on the skin and also on the sample so that that's our orientation point. And then we press it out like, like you see there. And there are slides, and you, and you can see we've got a positive margin. And then up in the right-hand corner, we can go back just to that little area and, and take a sample. And that's in its simplest form. Occasionally with larger pieces of tissue, it's got to be cut in some way that it can fit on glass slides. So it can get a little more complex with tissue being cut in all sorts of patterns to create small enough lines to, or small sections to, to put on the slides. But any way you slice it, you're looking at 100% peripheral and 100% deep. And it allows you to take a little smaller margin because since you're not compensating for these gap areas, you can cut it closer. Mohs doesn't guarantee a small hole. It just guarantees the smallest hole that gets the cancer clear. But ultimately, it's the cancer that determines how large the defect is going to be. And here's kind of a case you can see. Uh, we've taken our stage, and there's a little tiny nick um, it's actually at 12 o'clock on the patient, but since we're upside down, it's at 6 o'clock on the photo. And there are slides, and the little black dots indicate where we've got a little bit of uh, tumor yet positive. And this corresponds directly to the patient. You can actually literally, I don't do this on a routine basis, but you can. You can literally take the slide right in, lay it right on the patient, and, and mark where your spots are. So it's kind of a nice way to go. I, I find a picture worth a thousand words, and I love to be able to see the slide, the patient, the anatomic, the anatomic structure, the, the defect, the slide, the whole, the whole nine yards. It just, I find I can correlate things well. And we'll just kind of roll through a few cases here. This is a, a, a tumor where, uh, this is just a little show and tell time now, so hopefully this will be fun. This is a tumor uh, where the uh, ulcerated site superior was a recurrence of a, of a, a desiccation curatage, and the, the lower little spot was what we thought was a new tumor. But in fact, the entire uh, nose was, uh, was all, all cancerous. And, and again, this just shows how much normal-looking skin, nor skin looks normal clinically, can actually be involved with tumor. Um, and actually, we removed enough tissue there that she started getting a little bit of a laxity in the ala, a little bit of instability, so that when she would inspire, it would kind of collapse, and when she'd expire, it would go out, and she'd kind of get this flap action going, causing her some breathing problems. So we actually wound up putting a little piece of cartilage from the ear down in there and then did one of these forehead flaps where you sew those in. It's based on the supertrochlear artery coming out of the eye, so you can create a fairly long flap uh, and still have good circulation, let that heal for about three weeks, and then sew it in. Um, and she did pretty well. I was happy with how her nose looked. Um, she's not the perfect case, though, because actually one of the toughest things to manage with this repair is actually that brow where you turn the whole thing. Because when they come back, it's all swollen. There's a lot of uh, granulation. The tissue's kind of stiff. Um, and she healed in well, but you can see the brow's kind of turned down a little bit. The brow's not actually missing. There's just a little tissue redundancy there. And what could be done is uh, we could just re remove that little redundancy and, and there's that scar kind of extending down towards the brow that could be kind of folded up into that other little scar that's more on the glabella and bring the brow right up into place. Unfortunately, she's happy with it the way it is, and she won't let me do it. The pa patient's the boss. You can't make them do stuff that you, 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 you would like to do. But uh, So she, she's happy. She's, uh, I, I was told by uh, her primary doctor that, uh, that the swelling has resolved and it's come back up to some degree, but it would be nice to get back to that. This, this is a case, uh, it's not real large, but again, a recurrence of a desiccation and curatage. The thing that makes this one a challenge is it involves cheek and upper lip, and then this little triangle right next to the nose. You know, the the uh, melolabial fold comes up, and it doesn't come right to the tip of the nose. It actually comes up alongside the nose. And it's kind of a minor thing, sort of minor, not really. That little triangle, if it's gone, it, it just doesn't look right. You, you, you look at somebody, and you look at them, and it's like something's not right. What is it? It, it kind of preoccupies. When they meet somebody and greet them at a party, the person they're talking to is preoccupied with 
what's not right, you know. Um, so it's kind of a little challenging repair. And what we wound up doing was uh, kind of making a back cut along the medial labial fold, advancing some lip up there, and then bringing cheek down. So it kind of looked like that, and she actually did pretty well. Um, a, lot of, a lot of times when I show this picture, people comment on her earrings. I, I love her earrings, actually. They're pretty cool. And I'm always thrilled. When somebody looks at this picture and they're looking at the earrings, that's, that's, that's like the best for me. This is kind of interesting, uh, I, I think a nice point. On the lip, um, this is a, a tumor where the, the, the circle right next to the filtrum ridge is where the biopsy had been done. But when she came in, she also had this little ulceration off to the side. Um, and in fact, the whole thing turned out to be a, a malignancy, but not very deep. Uh, and the, the key thing here is that the orbicularis oris muscle is not violated. You know, if you wind up violating that muscle, it has to be repaired, meaning you've got to bring muscle back to muscle in order to, to create function. But in this case, uh, it, it was there. And that muscle, as it heals and it moves, does a, just a phenomenal job of remodeling things. And so what we did on this right screen, we kind of created this island pedicle, and we brought it over partway to replace the skin upon the cutaneous lip, but the vermilion, the red lip, we, we did not repair at all. And as you see, we, we brought it over, and on the medial part of this repair, you can see there's kind of a little tip, a little, little, little point coming up. You know, the, the lip, you, you've kind of, you got it comes up to a point, you know, right at the filter ridge, and then there's a little Cupid's bow, comes up to a point, and then back down. We kind of left that, that little point there trying to mimic the little peak on the other side, uh, and then let it heal. And I'll tell you, when she came back in about two weeks for the stitch removal, it was looking like a disaster, and I started to really worry. But actually, in the end, she, she healed beautifully. The only, the only downside is if you look at the uh, um, lateral uh, oral commissure, she's got a little tiny bit of hooding there, just a little tiny bit. Nothing is ever exactly the same with any repair, but all in all, she did pretty well. And it's, it's nice. You know, not every repair on the lip has to, or I'm sorry, not every defect on the lip has to be repaired. You know, you, it's, it's kind of messy. It's not that pleasant for patients, but sometimes if, if you do a, an excision on the lip and you don't violate that muscle, um, just leave it alone and let it heal. It, it can do beautifully. I've, I've seen really, I've actually created very large defects on the lip. They weren't that deep, but they were large and wide. And I just let it heal, and they, they do nicely. This is kind of a, a, an interesting one. This lady, when she came in, if you, you know, I stuck my finger inside her nose, my, my gloved finger up inside her nose. Um, and there's like this nodule inside there, like a pea. And, and clearly this tumor just extended through the full thickness of the ala. And here on the right side, it's kind of obscured a little bit by the ointment, but, but the whole ala is gone. And basically, you're just looking at a nasal septum there. And what we did on this one is we made that cut all the way down uh, a, a, along that flap and then undermine this whole thing back to about within five millimeters of the ailer base there. And we just rolled this whole thing up so that this tissue here basically becomes the internal lining of the nose. And then the whole thing gets folded around on top. And uh, that was her repair. And uh, there she is uh, at, the, at the conclusion after healing. Straight ahead, she looks pretty nice. Um, from the side, that ailer crease is a little more prominent, but um, she did pretty well. It, it, she's a good patient for it because she has kind of a big, broad nose. Somebody with a fine, slender little nose would be a little tougher. But anyway, that's, those are just some cases. Um, I think things to keep in mind, you know, skin cancer is increasing in incidence. And one of the most worrisome things is that we're seeing younger and younger patients. And I think as we see those young patients, we have to think about you know, giving them treatment that is going to be, uh, have uh, good reliability over years and years to come. So although there's oftentimes that, think, that thought, you know, oh, you know, young woman, I'm going to leave the tiniest scar I can. If she gets a recurrence 10 years or 15 years later, it doesn't really pay off. The younger the patient, actually, the more aggressive I am. Because really clearly your best, your best result is when you get the cancer cleared the first time and never have to treat it again. Anytime we're treating recurrences, our cure rates and our, our cure rates go down and our morbidity goes up. Um, I think all the things we talked about are appropriate. The key is uh, selecting when you're going to use them. Um, and I think that's, that's it. Uh, I'd be happy to take any questions if you have them, questions or comments. Um,
Go ahead. Yeah, hi. Um, with do, do you always expect a biopsy to be done initially, or do you sometimes, like if you um, clinically think that it's a basal cell, go ahead and treat it with maybe Aldera beforehand? Um, I mean, in looking at some of the tracking that some of this stuff does, is there certain areas that you shouldn't do Aldera without doing a biopsy? Um, I always do a biopsy. I mean, I have seen, I, I had a scenario where I had a patient, I had a student working with me, and I, and I, I showed him this pearly rodent ulcer. Um, I biopsied it, and I curetted it on the spot, and it mushed out jelloey. And I, I told the patient, I said, the student, take a picture of this. This is a basal cell carcinoma. I said, you could put this in a textbook. It was an amelanotic melanoma. Had to call the student back and say, you know that thing I told you about? Uh, bad, bad news. Uh, whatever, everything I told you, take it out of your mind. Uh, you know, I said, you do enough biopsies, you're going to find goofy things. You know, another patient I biopsied that I, what I thought was a basal cell turned out to be a uh, um, um, sebaceous adenoma. And I, I did the you know, CT, chest, abdomen, pelvis, and there's a muratory patient with a, uh, with a renal carcinoma. Uh, so I, I just, the thought of treating things without a biopsy first just makes me real nervous. You know, the other thing you have to keep in mind is, you know, melanoma, metastatic melanoma of unknown primary does occur. Right. And if you treat something without a biopsy, unless you, you just get unlucky, a year later this patient winds up with metastatic melanoma of unknown primary, how can you prove that that thing you treated wasn't the primary? You know, you can't. So I just, you're just, you know, I tell you, I, I just wouldn't do it. I, I don't do it myself. I just don't recommend it. Are there certain locations that are going to track more than others? I know around the nasal labial fold is a real primary place, but I saw the lateral you mean, campus. You mean the potential for uh, more uh, subclinical spread? Yes. Ears, um, along the jawline, around the nose okay. uh, are, are classic places for it. Um, they, you know, some people may have heard it, but they talk about embryonic fusion planes, places mm -hmm. where as embryo the tissues come together, and there's a thought that that creates, you know, uh, um, uh, a plane that tissue can dissect through easily. Um, they tend to be around the mid-face. That's a thought. You know, at one point I tried to do a little research and find out just what are these embryonic fusion planes. And, and everybody talks about them, but it's not documented anywhere what they really are, what it means. So I, I don't know. But yeah, head, neck, ears, mid-face are classic places for it. Thank you. You're welcome. Yes. Uh, what are your thoughts about the use of Aldara uh, to highlight tumor margins or debulk a tumor before intervening surgically? And then also, how does that change the path slide if you were to use it preoperatively? Um, you know, I hadn't thought about it in terms of delineating a tumor, uh, but, uh, you know, I've never done it. But there is some logic to that, you know, actually. You know, say we're going to treat with Aldara for, say, a couple weeks to help define the margin, then you come back in and we'll do, in my case, Mohs. Yeah. There might be some logic to that. A little expensive because Aldera is not cheap, uh, but, but perhaps not unreasonable. I, I wouldn't really like the idea of treating something thoroughly and then coming back and doing Mohs, because anytime you do some sort of treatment, again, the, the key for Mohs to work is it has to be a contiguous tumor, meaning every part of the tumor has to connect back up to the main body. That way, every time you, you know, follow it, you, 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 you track it out. If it's a discontiguous tumor, meaning it's like a melanoma, where it'll grow, it'll stop, it'll move over a centimeter, well, then if you get a clear margin, you don't know what's on just the other side. Right. And if you treated it with something first, you may have treated part of the tumor, but not gotten all the peripheries, and now you've got a discontiguous tumor. So theoretically, at least, your cure rate would potentially go down. Thank you. You're welcome. Yes? The practice I work at right now is, is pretty rural, and where I came from, we had uh, fellowship-trained Mohs surgeons widely available. The predicament that we find that we're in right now is a lot of our patients don't want to travel very far, and we're, we're stuck with this decision regularly to refer to a non-fellowship-trained uh, dermatologist performing Mohs surgery or take a longer trip, twice, two or three times the distance, to a fellowship train. So I, I was wondering if you had any opinions on uh, does residency nowadays provide what you believe is sufficient training for Mohs surgery? Well, I think some residencies may, but you can't rely upon that because a lot of Durham residents come out with actually relatively little surgical training. 
Um, it's, it's a little bit of a political issue, to be honest with you. As you know, there's the Mohs College, of which I'm a member, and then there's the Mohs Society, which you know, teaches the week-long course, and it's a little bit of a political push and pull. I like to think I'm on the middle ground. I, I have seen a, a, a number of the, the uh, non-fellowship-trained Mohs surgeons who are very, very good, and they're, they're extremely good. Um, in my case, I'm, I'm at, a, at a larger institution, and I felt like I had to go do the medical fellow or the fellowship because when I came back, I needed to be able to provide consultative level care right out of the gate. I think the non-fellowship trained people can become extremely good, but it takes time. And they're pretty much going to be treating their own patients, kind of selecting the, the easier ones, referring out the hard ones until they kind of get their feet under them. And I think it takes a few years for that to occur. But there are some that are good. So I think it depends upon your person. I can't give you a general statement. If you feel comfortable with that person, you think they're doing good, maybe go work with them for a day or two just to see how they work. I, yeah. I think, I would think they'd be, if they're not open to that, then they're probably not somebody you want to work with, to be honest with you. And then Thank make you. your own decision. Does that make sense or help? Or? Yeah, yeah. It, it, I figured the answer was it depends on the individual. But I think it depends um, on the individual, just, exactly. I've heard uh, talking to some of those dermatologists who haven't been fellowship trained that I hear the statement about how many cases nowadays they have to do in traditional residency for most surgery. I, I wasn't sure how many, What what is the... The well, amount I think of training they do receive. In, in a dermatology residency, you have to have exposure to most surgery, but you don't actually have to do it yourself. Okay. Yeah. Um, you know, they, they teach a course out in San Diego, uh, the Mo Society does, for people who want to uh, take it. And then they actually have a certification program themselves. I would, rec I, would, I would definitely recommend that the person at least have done that, you know, taken their, their course. Uh, the thing is, then they t basically get their experience on their own, and they submit cases. I would make sure they've at least done that. I would sure that, make sure they at least have done the certification. And that shows at least they're somewhat serious about it. Um, but then, again, the other thing is I would just, I would say, hey, you know, we're thinking of sending you some cases. Can I just come see what you do? Um, you know, if anybody calls me, I've had a couple of people do it, come want to work with me. And I say, sure, you know, come over a day or two, whatever you got, and we'll work together. I'd say if they don't want you to come see what they do, then you probably don't want to. All right. Thank you. You're welcome. Hi. Um, the practice that I work in, we EDNC a lot of superficial basal cells on the extremity. Can you repeat that just a little louder? We, we EDNC a lot of superficial cells um, uh -huh. on the trunk and extremities. And I recently had a case where the patient had a history of having um, the area frozen, never biopsied. I biopsied it was a superficial basal cell. Do you think an EDNC would be inappropriate? Would you be more aggressive and do an excision? I guess it would depend, in my mind, how aggressive the freeze was. I mean, I'm, I'm envisioning a scenario where somebody thought it was an actinic keratosis. Mm -hmm. They did a little light five or ten second freeze, and in fact it came back, so then we biopsied it. You're not going to generate that much scar tissue with a freeze like that, and okay. I think an EDNC would be appropriate. Now, if somebody thought that this is a basal cell, and I'm just going to freeze it for like 45 seconds or an hour, not an hour, 45 seconds or a minute, yeah, an hour maybe, uh, I'm going to freeze it for 45 seconds or a minute, and I'm going to grate this great big ulcer, and then it's going to heal in, I, I would not probably, you know, you're going to generate a lot of scar tissue with that, and I probably would not do EDNC. It depends on how much scar tissue you think is there. Mm -hmm. So as long as it's well delineated, you'd feel comfortable doing an EDNC then? Well delineated and not, yeah. a, not a lot of scar clinical scar tissue there. Okay. All right, thank you. You're welcome. It, can I ask a question over here? Yeah. The, oh, I'm sorry. I'm, <laughs> I'm only looking in one direction. Yes, please. In regards to um, uh, post-surgical scarring, especially on the face, um, what are your instructions to patients post-op and also are you using any of the kind of scar creams that are floating around out there right now? Um, my recommendation, I usually put a, a, a good dressing on. If, um, if uh, there's a Generally, I'll have them take the dressing off the next day, and, and uh, unless it's a real delicate repair, I actually like them to get in the shower. I tell them not to sh take their uh, power washer or massage head and shoot it right in there, but let the water, say, like hit them up on here and just roll down and start kind of cleaning that crust out of there. And I'll actually have them shower once a day. I don't like them to dive in pools or hot tubs or, 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 or bathtubs, nothing that submerges it, because then you get some hydrostatic pressure that can force water in there. Um, so, again, if it's not a real delicate repair, that's, that's what I'll do. And I'll have them wash it daily, reapply antibiotic ointment and a dressing until I take out the stitches, whether it's five days or seven or whatever the case may be. Uh, as far as scar creams, 
you know, they've, none of them have ever really been proven to have uh, any benefit. I, I kind of tell patients, patients will ask me and I'll say, you know, if, you've got, if, if your pennies are not tight at home and you want to try something, it's not going to hurt anything, it might help, go, go ahead. If there are patients that are scrimping, you, you know, to buy their medications and their food and pay the rent, I tell them not to spend their money on it. I think the most important thing is uh, keep it clean. Uh, try to get that crust out of there as soon as it kind of gets past that first, you know, initial period where it would bleed if you try to clean it away. And keep it well covered with ointment and, a, and an occlusive dressing. That's my thought. Actually, along those lines, do you, do you ever use Aldera or Zyclera? Repeat for, that for me. Along those lines, do you ever use Aldera or Zyclera after for scar therapy? Um, not as scar therapy, really. Um, you know, sometimes I'll get patients that have, uh, you know, actinic keratosis in the peripheries of their excision. You, you see these patients, you know, that literally, they, you know, they, they, they've had like 50,000 things frozen. They've got scars everywhere. They're scaly everywhere. And you, you treat a squam on that patient, you're never going to get normal skin. I mean, you're just not. At some point, you just got to say, we're going to stop, even though there's some minor in situ involvement or an actinic keratosis. And again, it's a gray area between what's actinic keratosis and what's small in situ. Occasionally, patients like that, I'll come back and treat it with Aldera afterwards to try to get, or, or Effudex or something, to try to get that um, actinic uh, damage out of there. But I've not really used it so much as a scar therapy. Okay. The biggest thing I use for scar therapy is if it's a hypertrophic scar something, it's all use interlesional kenalog. Yeah. And, and I'm a big believer in scar massage. It does make a difference. Because there, there was an article out about using Aldera for, you know, directly after um, surgery to decrease scarring, but I didn't know if you've ever... I, have, I actually personally have never tried I, it. I've not done it. I guess I've seen those articles too. Yeah. Um, I, I can't speak from experience. Okay. And my other question was, um, with the nodular basal cell, uh, if it extends to the deep margins and you, you said you could do E, D, and C for those, what is the recurrence no. rate? No. If you're... It, it, repeat that again. Uh, a basal cell nodular. Um, mm -hmm. You can just said possibly treat E, D, and C. Uh, what if it extends to the deep margins, though, and what is I've, I've seen a lot recur, actually, recently. You mean after um, electrodesiccation and curatage? Yeah, from other clinics. I'm not sure exactly what they did, but, yeah, they didn't, it was not surgically excised, and these were nodular basal cells. Well, they may not have been aggressive enough yeah. with their electrodesiccation and curatage. Um, it's possible that it was one of these tumors that did extend down to the fat, and, again, once you pop through and you're in the fat, a curette is just useless in terms of trying to determine where the edges are from a tactile sense. Um, and, you know, every treatment fails sometimes. That's just, that's yeah. just the way it is. Okay. Thank um, you for your talk. Yeah, you're welcome. Thank you, everybody.